Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Joining us today is Dr. Adam Keen, MD, MS. He is an assistant professor of medicine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and a medical intensivist working primarily in the medical ICU at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Rich. We are going to talk about an article uh, that he was first author on that was recently published in Critical Care Medicine. The title of the article was the use of a critical care consult team to identify risk for methicillin-resistant staph aureus infection and the potential for early intervention, a pilot study. The reference is Critical Care Medicine 2010, volume 38, number 1, pages 109 to 113. I thought uh, I'd let you begin the podcast by giving a little bit of background about what clinical question you were trying to answer um, and again, I, just for the listeners, because I like to introduce it first, the big picture here is looking at screening patients for MRSA, and can we somehow use that to decrease the incidence of this difficult-to-treat ICU infection? Yeah, well, thanks, Rich. So as you know, Staph aureus is, is a very important pathogen in hospitalized patients, and particularly in critically ill patients. It remains the most common and important cause of severe nosocomial pneumonias, bloodstream infections, and surgical site infections. Um, and when it comes to Staph aureus infections, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus infection is becoming more and more predominant uh, in many hospitals, and it's particularly pro problematic um, both because of the poor antibiotic options that we have for MRSA infection and also potentially because of increased virulence of MRSA as opposed to MSSA. Um, in terms of screening and isolation practices, they really vary by country and by hospital. Um, for instance, in some Scandinavian countries, all patients with any risk factor for MRSA colonization are isolated on admission and screened. Uh, for MRSA colonization. So and wait, wait, wait. So they're, so because I, I know you and I are just talking about this yeah. recently. So they will isolate people even if they're risk factors. They don't even or or so they isolate patients or? on admission so, to the hospital um, before they can know. Basically, anyone from an outside country, anyone with history of prior anti wow, antibiotic exposure, um, and and they've been very effective overall at keeping MRSA infection rates very low. Um, so aggressive, aggressive isolation. Very aggressive isolation. Also, they have very uh, effective antibiotic stewardship programs. They limit antibiotic use, and they are able to do it very effectively. And you were you were telling me that, 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 that they will send people, workers, home if they're found to have it and things like yeah, that? Yeah, they, they, they um, furlough any, any workers with MRSA colonization. They screen them for it, and they decolonize them. They also decolonize any patient... Uh, very aggressively that they find. So very different practices from, it, from the It's United very States. different, and, and the main reason that it's different and will remain that way is because unlike in the Scandinavian countries, in, in North America, in Western Europe, and in many Asian countries, the genie is sort of out of the bottle when it comes to MRSA. That, in other words, uh, colonization... The, the prevalence. The, 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 the prevalence, prevalence is too high. To, 
to uh, just logistically um, to isolate everybody who is admitted with any risk factor for MRSA colonization, we'd be isolating. We would just need an entire hospital of isolation. But. Exactly. It becomes logistically uh, very difficult. Um, and so what this leaves the ICUs with is, is needing to come up with their own policies in terms of uh, whether they isolate and screen everybody on admission. And However, even if you do that, even if you screen every patient and keep them isolated um, until you find out that, that whether or not they are colonized with MRSA, um, as we've seen in prior studies that we've done, most patients who develop um, an MRSA infection in the ICU actually had MRSA nasal colonization prior to ICU admission. So unless you have a very effective technique to decolonize patients, you're not going to be able to prevent infection in those patients. And so the so just to resummarize, we don't have enough ICU we don't have enough isolation beds to isolate everybody. And one of the potential ways uh, when you say decolonizing them is the nasal application of of topical Antibiotics. Right. So it's uh, essentially the 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 favored techniques and the most clinically proven to be effective techniques are topical decolonization techniques with nasal mupirocine and uh, chlorhexidine washes as well, body washes. Right. That was another recent article in Critical Care Medicine, also that was published a few right. months ago. Right. Um, and I, I remember reading. So that's different from this, though, right? I remember that was there were theoretical concerns there for increased gram-negative infections with that, but that's not the exact same issue here with the nasal it, mupirocin. It's a, it's a somewhat different issue um, in terms of using nasal mupirocin. If you're going to use it, it needs to be used in a very targeted fashion, and that's because uh, centers historically that have used mupirocin in a widespread fashion have shown very rapid very widespread development of resistance to the, to the drug. So in your particular study, just to, to set it up, um, this was not an interventional study. It was a study seeing if using a critical care consult team might be able to find a group of patients that you might then be able to target. Is that correct? Correct. So it was really a preliminary study to see uh, if it would make sense to do an interventional trial using the critical care consultant to go out and uh, recognize patients with MRSA nasal colonization as early as possible during their hospitalization um, so that if, if a mucosal decolonization technique was to be used, it could be used before the patient had been intubated for a long period of time or had uh, a lot of uh, central lines in or maybe other already developing devices. signs and symptoms of an infection sure and the problem with with try, attempting to decolonize somebody who has who is intubated for a long period of time for instance is that the endotracheal tube becomes colonized it becomes much more difficult to actually uh, decolonize a patient and so if you wanted to talk briefly about your big picture design of this particular study that would be great sure so um so uh, basically, this was a prospective observational study in which all patients, or actually all patients who had at least one risk factor for MRSA nasal colonization uh, that were seen by our critical care consult team were screened for MRSA nasal colonization and then simply followed for the development 
of a CDC-defined uh, MRSA infection. And the primary outcome was really just the percentage of patients who are MRSA nasally colonized who develop subsequent MRSA infections versus the percentage of non-colonized patients who eventually developed MRSA infections. And so let me just backtrack with a couple follow-up questions. So the first thing is, what are, so if you said risk factors for MRSA, I mean, off the top of my head, I would say, so having recently been in a healthcare institution and that kind of thing, are there other major ones that our listeners should know about? Yeah, I, you know, I think, you know, it really varies by study, but the, the risk factors that seem to pan out across studies is, is prior antibiotic exposure, nursing home residents, uh, presence of diabetes, uh, presence of end-stage renal disease, intravenous drug use, um, history of uh, obesity, or a history of cirrhosis. And were you able to fairly quickly figure these all out with some facility in terms of, for these patients, some prior antibiotic use and all that? Um, that was really done by chart review. It was done by our fellows who went out there. It was uh, part of the checklist. That but they, they initially but it was through. done in real time. It yes, wasn't that they right. waited... You didn't screen everybody and then look back. You, no, you we had them who you review the screen. chart initially and decide whether or not a patient uh, made sense for screening. And, but that didn't turn out to be like a major challenge as far as... Oh, no. No, it no. was not. Okay. And then, um, and, and again, just for the listeners so they understand, the concept here is if we use this consult service, this would be, in theory, if the results, which we're going to talk about in a second, panned out, that would be a group of patients where you could say, aha, this is allowing us a little bit of lead time to say these are the ones to use the nasal mupirocin on. How many days would would that need to be used for the mupirocin? So nasal mupirocin, in terms of decolonizing uh, MRSA, nasal colonization, it it uh, it the usual course of therapy is three to five days. However, it's been shown to be effective after only one day of, of therapy. So this doesn't need to be long term at all. No, in fact, five days is the maximum. And, and uh, previous studies have shown that it, it works? That I mean, it's the most effective for decolonization, wow. much more effective than parenteral antibiotics or any other form of uh, decolonization technique. So that would be what you would be referring to, like if a healthcare worker was found to be MRSA positive, to let them back in the hospital? Right, that would the be what they nasal mupirocin and then chlorhexidine body washes, because there is some evidence of that patients can be colonized um, in the axilla and other areas, chlorhexidine body washes, although the evidence isn't as good, um, are used in addition um, for uh, total decolonization. So you did a lot of very uh, complicated statistics here, but I thought we could stay focused on some of the 30,000-foot important results from your uh, exciting study, if you'd like to do that. Great. So, yeah, so uh, overall what we found was that a, a very high percentage of the patients that we screened, about 15%, uh, did indeed have MRSA nasal colonization. And of those uh, 15% who had MRSA nasal colonization, about 24% eventually defined a CDC-defined MRSA infection. About half of these were bacteremias and half of them uh, ventilator-associated pneumonias. So a very high rate of infection, about one in four chance if you had MRSA nasal colonization, that subsequently you would develop an MRSA infection. And in contrast, only about 1% uh, of the non-colonized patients developed a subsequent MRSA infection. So you could basically show that, uh, first of all, that the patients with 
MRSA nasal colonization are at greatly elevated risk for infection, and that patients without MRSA nasal colonization have almost no risk for development of subsequent MRSA infection. So, um, yeah, no, that's uh, two follow-up questions. Were you surprised with the 15% being colonized? Was that higher or lower than you it, thought? It's higher than um, than has been shown in the past. In in uh, w even when we did a prior study uh, in the ICU, it was it was a lower rate. Then again, this was a somewhat selected population because we did it at least require them factor, to have a right? risk factor. Right. Um, but but you didn't think it was going to be much higher than than no this no. was moderately higher than than we had expected and then one of the things that you mentioned in the study and I, I wasn't sure of the clinical uh, implications of this but if you could clarify it it was the like in your table two on page I guess I'm not sure what page that's on here but um, you write MRSA infection greater than or equal to four days after the swab. And I, I think you discussed in the method section why you said it that way, but I was wondering if you could share that with the listeners because I thought that was interesting. Right. So this is a little bit, uh, was a little bit uh, complicated for me to, be, to explain to others. It has been somewhat complicated. But essentially what I wanted to get rid of was patients who developed an infection less than four days after we swabbed them. The reason for that is that if they developed infection so soon after we uh, screened them, I think it, would, it was likely that an infection was brewing prior to that point and that topical decolonization techniques would be ineffective. So, so awesome, because that was sort of my understanding from reading the, sto the, the story, the, the, the paper, was it, it, we wanted it to be in the window where the use of the decolonization would be relevant to right, the infection. Right. Is that the so, idea? So we want to find patients during their highest risk window, which I believe is when they uh, become critically ill, and we want to look for infections that would be preventable by decolonization techniques. Um, and in terms of uh, your study, and, and again, because we do actually have a little time, um, was there a lot of difficulty recruiting for this, or did this turn out to be so, relatively straightforward? Right. So this was um, uh, actually by our IRB uh, judged to be a minimal risk study, so we were able to do it without consent. Um, we did give informational handouts to the patients or the patients uh, next of kin so that they could refuse to yeah, be involved in the study refuse, if, yeah. if, if uh, requested. Uh, you know, one thing in, in, in New York State, it uh, is particularly difficult at some institutions to do trials in critically ill patients because um, essentially, uh, depending on your institutional review board and their interpretation of New York state law, they may not allow for surrogate informed consent to be given uh, uh, by surrogates of critically ill patients. Um, and then the other question I had was, uh, you didn't find any difference in hospital mortality between those that were MRSA colonized and not, even though their incidence of MRSA infection was higher. Is that the, 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 the end of the study or something like that? Yeah, I think that the, you know, the overall power, the study really wasn't powered to look at mortality. Okay. Um, and I thought what I'd like to do next is let you focus for a few minutes on what you believe the clinical implications uh, of your study might be for, for something like this. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, my feeling is, and it's been my feeling for a while, that it would really be uh, make sense to do a, a randomized controlled trial uh, investigating this strategy. So essentially, 
This would use a, the critical care consultant to when they go out and see a patient, if the patient is at risk for MRSA nasal colonization, perform a rapid, and these are becoming more readily available and uh, easy to perform, a PCR-based uh, test for MRSA nasal colonization. Um, and then um, uh, to randomize patients if they uh, do show uh, that they have MRSA nasal colonization to either one of these topical antimicrobial regimens with mupirocin and chlorhexidine or to placebo. Um, this would need to be a large study based on the numbers um, that we derived from our current study. Uh, we think we'd need to screen about 3,000 patients in order to have a 90% power to detect a statistically significant difference between the placebo and treatment arms in this study. And so this would be um, a randomized trial of some sort of focused group that you felt would be most likely to, to benefit from the decolonization and then randomize them to either getting decolonized or not, again, looking at improved outcomes, either decreased risk of infection and mortality if it's a large enough study, right? Correct. And then... Um, I, I wanted to backtrack just for one second because you've you've been uh, teaching this to me before in terms of the particular technique that was used in your study for looking for the MRSA colonization. Maybe if you could talk about yeah, that. Yeah, so, you know, in, in a prior study that I've done with uh, Frank Lowy at Columbia, we actually developed one of the early um, PCR-based techniques. Um, but in this study, it actually was unimportant. Um, doing PCR was unimportant because we weren't doing an intervention. So uh, we just used uh, basic bacterial culture to rec recognize MRSA. But in any interventional study, it would make much more sense to detect MRSA colonization rapidly via a PCR-based system. And so in, in that concept, you would be able to rule people in or out of being in this targeted group. It, it's, is it within hours? Within is that hours, okay. yes. And that would be ideal. And then um, you were discussing with me, with me before that there was a recent important article published in the New England Journal of Medicine using some of these concepts, and, and uh, maybe we could talk about that. Right. So I think that, you know, the, the article by Dr. Bode and uh, others that just came out as lead article uh, January 7th, uh, 2010, in the New England Journal, um, uh, which looked... Um, at screening, uh, this was a general surgical population for staph aureus nasal colonization using a rapid PCR technique and decolonizing patients with mupirocin and chlorhexidine. Um, and it, so it randomized patients to either uh, that treatment or placebo. And they showed a 50% reduction. It was statistically significant in staph aureus infections. So uh, this is the type... So this is a surgical site infection. Right. right? Okay. Right. Sorry. And so this was, the reduction was from about 7% to about 3.5% infection rate. This was uh, a study done, again, in a population that's easier to study uh, because they, they are... Uh, pre-op surgical patients, you can plan the screening and intervention. You have more time. Um, and they're going to have a known injury. <laughs> right. That, that they have a known, the risk factor. Known or, risk or. window and a time that you could decolonize them before that risk window. So it's, it's an easier patient population to study and intervene on. However, it, they do not seem to have nearly the risk overall of subsequent uh, staph aureus infection that our critically ill patients have. So such a study, my feeling is, needs to be done in critically ill patients. Um, I think it would be more challenging. Um, the rapidity of the testing is more important. 
the rapidity that of application of the uh, topical decolonization techniques is more important. But overall, the benefits could be far greater because our patients are at so much higher risk. Did they do sort of the same um, approach that you were recommending where they used the PCR of a colonized, of, of, a, of a swab of some sort to determine if they were colonized and only randomized those patients then to either Correct. getting mutation so or not? So this was, again, targeted intervention based on screening. It was actually done in all patients with staph aureus nasal colonization. They didn't look for specifically for methicillin resistance. And in fact, this study was mainly done in Scandinavia, and they had no methicillin resistance there. So this was in... So a, it's a staph, but not necessarily this was MRSA, for but MSSA, but the MSSA same. disease, which is a very similar disease. So uh, in our patient population, we could do the study either just looking at MRSA or looking at both because MSSA disease is still a severe disease. It's just becoming less prevalent. So anyway, you were going to discuss with me the uh, the percent colonization in this New England Journal study? Yeah, so th- their, their percentages were in line or actually a little bit low uh, in terms of uh, the overall uh, average population risk for any staph aureus uh, nasal colonization. It was about 19% in their study. Um, and again, they had no MRSA nasal colonization. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> it's very impressive. I wish we could, uh, could be in that place. So I, I think that because, you know, I've done some other podcasts talking about this concept of, you know, decontamination, decontamination of the digestive tract, which, again, the data mostly comes from Europe, which, again, is still controversial and certainly is not a standard of care in the United States. Um, to me, this kind of focused decontamination seems to make a little bit more intuitive sense, I think, as a clinician. I think that we're uh, not particularly enamored of giving lots and lots of broad-spectrum antibiotics to patients. And, and you know, I was talking with Phil Barry about this. It's one of his areas of right. expertise. And it just it just has not caught on in America. And I think that doing something like this, where we quickly are doing a test and quickly just applying this material, and hopefully could be improving outcomes in our patients, I think there would be buy-in. I mean, yeah. So from my my own perspective as an infectious disease physician, uh, and and it's always been sort of the 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 infectious disease community in the U.S. that's been opposed to these broad decontamination techniques. And uh, that makes sense because we're concerned about resistance developing. So uh, this specific technique would just be uh, very targeted to a single organism and targeted to really just the the highest risk patient population. Well, Adam, uh, I could talk to you some more, but I'm lucky enough to work with you. So I will talk to you some more off off podcast. We've been speaking today with Dr. Adam Keene. He is a board-certified intensivist and a board-certified infectious disease specialist, and he's a colleague of mine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and he was a lead author on an article recently published in Critical Care Medicine, focusing on the value of using Uh, developing a targeted group of patients that might be amenable to therapy for decolonization to decrease MRSA infection. Thank you so much. I know you're busy. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Rich. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over four years of archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell.
Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MD, FCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email I critical care at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.